Louis the Sun King was born in 1638. Herald as a miracle baby, he was named after France's patron saint. His childhood was anything except normal. His father was likely a closeted gay man who had lived a life of laziness while his country fought a war against his wife's brother. His grandmother had been exiled from the realm, twice. His arrival came 23 years after his parents' marriage, at a point which all of the French realm had given up hope at avoiding another succession crisis, something that would have ruined all the intense work that the Catholic Church had put in through the hands of Cardinal Richelieu, the true power of the realm. Four stillbirths had preceded his birth, a likely result of the fact that the Sun King's parents were second cousins, who had themselves been products of hereditary incest. The boy instantaneously became one of the richest individuals on the planet, living in a palatial estate that had been fit for a cardinal. At the age of four, he was king. Louis the Sun King would go on to rule France and a large part of the world for the next 72 years. 72 years is quite a long time to rule. Although Queen Elizabeth of England made a run at it, Louis remains the longest monarch to ever rule in England. To pass him for that prestigious title, Liz II would have had to have held off the 73-year-old Prince Charles until May of 2024. To put his longevity in perspective, 72 years ago was 1950. That was the year that the modern concept of a credit card originated. 1950, we were four years away from having the microwave oven, five years from a vaccine for polio, six years from a hard drive, and it wouldn't be another seven years until modern-day birth control had been conceived of in a lab and brought into this earth. The era of mass travel began with the invention of the jet airliner in 1958. In other words, 72 years is quite a long time. Over the last 72 years, the world has discovered how to have stable population growth, unlimited intercontinental travel, and supercomputers that fit in our pockets. A lot can change over the course of time, particularly when you yield the awesome unlimited power of the sun, even if our Louis merely held it metaphorically. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the second in a series of five regarding Louis XIV, the Dance of the Sun King. Unlike many of Earth's most infamous tyrants, Louis didn't have to violently seize power in a revolt. Instead, he happened to be born in the right womb at the right time. Historian Philip Manzel tells us that Parisians reacted to the boy's pregnancy announcement as if the Messiah was about to be born. Under Richelieu, Protestant Huguenot descent had finally been crushed, and the now unified Catholic nation believed that God was rewarding them for their devotion. 
The French ambassador in Constantinople reacted to the birth announcement by firing off so many cannons in celebration that the inhabitants had assumed that another crusade had begun. From the beginning, the boy was larger than life and suckled his way through eight different wet nurses. He became inseparable from his mother, even more so after the death of his father. The queen hardly leaves him, one observer noted, and Dad claimed that from the moment he sees me, he cries as if he saw the devil, always crying for Mama. Louis and the French people saw fit to continue the practice of allowing the church to guide the monarch. Under Richelieu, the crown had managed to improve the economy, end the religious wars, and expand the overseas empire. Although he had been ruthless in his methods, it was clear that France was better for his rule. The cardinal was allowed to select his own successor, appointing an Italian named Giulio Mazarin. This protege of Richelieu had first made a name for himself as a scholar and gambler in Italy, was in the midst of planning to marry a woman in order to obtain her dowry so that he would be able to pay off his accumulated debts. It was at this point that his parents dragged him home from university. After settling down and becoming a lawyer, he was drafted into Pope Urban VIII's army against the Habsburg Emperor for the Thirty Years' War. He was summoned before the Pope after being charged with fleeing his first battle, supposedly in order to return home to his ailing mother. The lawyer threw himself upon the mercy of the Pope, begging for a second chance to serve him. He was granted the opportunity eventually earning the position of one of the Pope's chief negotiators, a role that eventually put him in Richelieu's path. He was made into a cardinal as a thank you for his service, despite the fact that he had never become a priest, nor had he given up on wooing women. He was particularly known for sending perfume and flowers to the French court's most eligible ladies. Louis XIII died five months after Mazarin had been put in place as Richelieu's successor. The king's will and final testament explicitly stipulated that Queen Anne should not be made regent. The act was an attempt to prevent a repeat of the mistakes that had come from Louis's mother, Marie's stint as regent. It was also a result of the long-standing policy of Richelieu and the rest of the French court to poison Queen Anne's reputation. Anne ultimately prevailed, however, by convincing her toddler son to order his father's will annulled. At this point, you might claim that she had the king eating out of the palm of her hand. With the battle lines clearly delineated for all to see, she immediately cleared out Richelieu's chief administrators, but retained the newly arrived Mazarin, whom she had taken an immediate liking to. Another cardinal described the difference between Richelieu and the new chief of state Mazarin, stating that one saw on the steps of the throne where the sharp and fearsome Richelieu had thundered rather than governed the people, a leader who is gentle, benevolent, and demands nothing. He has the spirit, the insinuation, the playfulness, the manners, but also a certain laziness. 
In other words, he was a diplomat who occasionally, like a gambler, would haphazardly let his guard down. I imagine it would mess a child up quite a bit to hear that the multitude of French masses celebrated your birth as if you were the second coming of the Messiah. From the beginning of his life until its end, 76 years later, Louis XIV would be told that he was at least as important, if not more so, than Jesus had been. The kid was different, and immediately took to his duties. By the age of four, at the time of his coronation, he displayed perfect piousness, washing the feet of poor men before serving them meals. The cardinal may not have been a man of faith, but he ensured that Louis received an excellent Catholic upbringing that emphasized God's desire for him to rule. From the outset, Louis the monarch was at odds with France's estates general, its version of parliament. The parliament had some legitimate functions at this point in history, namely registering the king's decrees and presenting complaints to the crown. Those who thought to derail the boy king, whether it was because they feared Anne of Austria, the Catholic Church, or they were just an early adopter of the coming Enlightenment ideas, hid behind parliament. One Parisian claimed that the citizens of the city regarded each judge in the parliament as an angel sent from heaven to protect them from Mazarin's tyranny. Paris and its institutions were on the rise, already surpassing Venice as the center for bookselling in Europe. The city had become known for its universities, fashion, and women. But Louis, like most French rulers, would spend little time there but for the beginning of his reign when court was held at the Palace Royal, Richelieu's old home. The rumors of a romance between Queen Anne, who still retained a reputation as being quite beautiful, and her chief of state, Mazarin, began immediately as the cardinal began sleeping at the Palace each night supposedly so he could arrive early for meetings each and every day. As a clearer sign of their closeness, the two slept in adjacent apartments which were connected by a small private passage. Mazarin had proved a good enough diplomat to fool his parents, the Pope, and Richelieu. Upon becoming the superintendent of the king's education, he used the offices to enrich himself eventually amassing enough money to hold as many liquid assets as the entirety of the Bank of Amsterdam. Rather than loathing her son as Marie had seemed to despise Louis XIII, Anne truly loved her firstborn child. They ate each meal together, she mended his clothes when needed, and cared for him when he was sick. The boy that she raised in this absurd environment was described as kind, modest, and intelligent. A boy who would always yield to reasoned argument. Anne would go on to have another son before her husband passed away. That boy, a dolphin named Philippe, was a year and a half younger than Louis, and the two brothers behaved as brothers do, causing mischief including disgustingly peeing on each other's bed. His mother let Louis out of his sight only to fulfill his official duties. 
At the age of six, he began to review regiments of troops. Like most boys, he was awed by the men-at-arms and took to styling himself in their manner. The year 1648 became an important milestone in Louis's life. The actions that he took set him on course to become one of the most hands-on and influential monarchs in world history. Anne, with Mazarin faithfully by her side, had managed to negotiate an end to the Thirty Years' War. The conflict enacted a harsh toll on Europe, resulting in the deaths of 8 million soldiers and civilians, with some portions of Germany experiencing declines of over half their population. France had utilized the conflict to seize power at the expense of the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs. Richelieu cleverly maneuvered the war in such a way that it had pivoted from a religious conflict to one of geopolitical supremacy. The Peace of Westphalia was the result of six years of negotiations between 109 delegates. The agreement enshrined the notion of a sovereign state independent of the Holy Roman Empire. It signaled both an end to religious wars in Europe, as well as the official abandonment of Catholic rule across the continent. It can be said that war is expensive while peace is free, but one still has to pay the bills that have been accrued because of wars in the past. The vast majority of America's accumulated debt comes from wars that the taxpayers never fought. France had accumulated quite the bill for its actions in the Thirty Years' War. Richelieu had believed in the philosophy that it was his job to find the money that the king wanted. That often meant mortgaging the future to pay for the present. He left the debt for his successor to deal with. The solution for Mazarin was the only option that governments have available to them. Increasing taxes. It remains to this day one of only two certainties in life. Sixteen forty-eight saw seven new taxes raised, but they weren't applied fairly to the populace. The ancient regime's tax codes exempted all aristocrats and clergy members. The vast majority of the tax burden was paid for by those who could least afford it. There was an understanding that went back for centuries that the king would be allowed to rule without much opposition only if he refrained from taxing his opponents. The unfairness and ineffectiveness of the tax system would be the single largest cause of the French Revolution. To their credit, the new rulers of France saw that the system was messed up and knew that there wasn't anything more to squeeze from the third estate. Thus, they introduced a new tax on the members of Parliament, a grouping that consisted of both the clergy and the nobility. Rather than understanding that bills had been accrued for past action, the estates general reacted with disdain for the crown as well as with outright hostility. Proving that they were only slightly more mature than the ten-year-old king, whose names the tax increases were made in, they burned all of Mazarin's earlier financial decrees. Soon the crown found itself in a hopeless PR battle with Parliament, namely 
who should have to pay more taxes, the people or those that lived in the Palais Royal. Soon everyone in Paris became an expert on the tax code and pointed out each and every example of government waste that they had willfully ignored up until this point. The Queen Regent's carriage was stopped throughout the city by angry citizens demanding bread and money. Knowing the necessity of the tax increases, the Queen and Cardinal sought to utilize the popularity of the young Louis in order to announce further increases. The boy wasn't up to it, however. In a speech announcing a new tax, the ten-year-old Louis forgot the words to his speech and actually began to cry in front of an angry crowd that booed him off stage. Parliament began to act as though it was the sovereign institution. Anne even publicly proclaimed that it was behaving as though France was a republic rather than a monarchy. They passed laws limiting how long the king could imprison someone, reduced their taxes, and announced that no new laws could exist without their prior approval. As one might have expected, the royal family didn't react well to the challenge. Anne arrested the leaders of the Estates General in a daring daytime display that set off protests of at least 50,000 Parisians. Barricades went up, and Paris became a city under siege from within its walls. Mazel tells us that in the summer of 1648, Paris was a volcano waiting to erupt. Everyone wanted change, more by disturbance in their brains than by reason. The king was weak, the princes had too much power, the minister was discredited, and the parliament made over-ambitious attacks on royal authority. Everything was outside its normal limits, order was overturned, and the French, for having too many masters, no longer recognized any. The queen and her advisor, as much as the underlying economic fragility of France, were responsible for the friend, and Louis would turn out to be the solution, emerging from this period as the absolute ruler of France. Taxes had been the straw that broke the camel's back, but the propaganda that emerged from the protesters clearly indicated that their wrath was directed more at the cardinal and the queen. A number of the pamphlets set their sights on Mazarin, the former gambler whose weak hand was widely on display for all to see. He was derogatorily referred to as a sodomist, and regularly drawn in appropriately mounting Queen Anne, who was herself depicted as a donkey. Both were denounced as foreigners who had no respect for the history or institutions of France. One pamphleteer couldn't decide on which insult to stick to Mazarin and went with the headline that Mazarin was a foreign rogue, juggler, comedian, famous robber, low Italian fellow, only fit to be hung. One lady of the court pointed out that it was the fashion to hate Mazarin, and Paris loves a good fashion trend. Parliament joined in condemning the cardinal to exile without a trial. They also confiscated all of his property and passed a decree calling for his head. 
It was around this point in the conflict that the king's court abandoned the city at 2 a.m. amidst the Feast of Epiphany. The decision was so sudden that the ten-year-old king was forced to sleep on a bed of straw after they finally stopped to rest. Rather than a revolutionary movement, the Frand, which was the name for a children's game involving a sling, devolved into occasional anarchy followed by periods of frivolous revolts and childlike insults. After having achieved the Peace of Westphalia, the monarchy was able to bring the army back to Paris in order to temporarily end the conflict in 1649. That year had begun with Parisians seeing war, siege, and famine within their gates. Historian Arthur Hazel tells us that the peace agreement came about as the war was already showing signs of degenerating into a mere selfish struggle on the part of the nobles against the centralization of the royal power, and especially against Mazarin. Unfortunately, like all feuds between powerful men, it is the little guy that suffers. The peace agreement came to be known as the Treaty of Rueil. It kept Mazarin in power, but granted Parliament the right to take some part in state affairs. It ended 12 straight weeks of conflict. Paris could breathe again. One of Anne's biographers expressed shock that the rebellion didn't proceed further, with Manzel pointing out that the emergence of just one Danton, the mythical and charismatic Three Musketeer leader, would have been enough to make the history of France jump 130 years ahead. They may have been saved by the Catholic Church, who was unwittingly playing both sides. The head of Catholics in France was jealous of Mazarin, and worked at the grassroots levels to encourage insurrection. However, the charitable works of the Church helped to alleviate hunger and the worst aspects of poverty making it easier for the government to deal with the challenges that were central to the front. Louis, who had somehow managed to retain his popularity with the people throughout the Fran, tentatively returned on August 18, 1649. He came under heavy military escort led by the Prince de Condé, whose stock had skyrocketed for his actions during the first phase of the Frand. The young king hosted his enemies on a different sort of battlefield, the ballroom. It was a battleground that the future Sun King knew well, having been tutored in dance by the best that France had to offer. He would go on during his reign to dance 60 rolls across 23 ballets, some of which lasted for a full five hours. He was described as majestic in his willingness to dance both masculine and feminine roles. His literal performance in the ballrooms helped to only increase his popularity and set him apart from both his mother and her despised lover. The Frand was a dangerous learning experience for a young man who had been born with a mouth full of golden spoons. In September of 1649, he sat in the council room for the first time listening to and beginning to dictate the court's strategy. 
Manzel tells us that Mazarin had tried to distract the young monarch with dancing and sport, but the boy had taken to his studies, quickly learning Latin and Italian, geography, grammar, math, and a version of French history that highlighted their exceptionalism. By the age of 14, he had successfully translated part of Caesar's commentaries on the war in France. He had drilled troops since he was five years old, and openly dreamt of one day being the next Alexander the Great, a boy who had inherited a throne, but conquered a world. It was during this initial intermission that Conde realized his worth. He had been the general that had restored the monarchy, but rather than being honored for his actions, he experienced jealousy from the queen regent. Mazarin and Anne decided to remove him before he could rise to the level of a threat, arresting him in January of 1650, along with his two influential brothers. Bacande had powerful allies who raised hell among the people of Paris in order to free the popular general. They even raised troops from Spain in order to rescue Conde, but the government forces defeated it in the field, seemingly ending the second phase of the Frand. But Mazarin yielded to political pressure from within the city and was forced to flee to Germany in February of 1651, conceding Paris to his enemies. For a month, the Queen's quarters, along with those of her son, were actively patrolled by Parliament's militia forces. Mazarin advised the two to act as prisoners. The Queen even opened up Louis's bedroom some nights to allow patrolling citizens to see with their own eyes that the boy had not fled the city. As Mazarin worked at raising a foreign army to rescue Queen Anne, Conde went to work wooing the city to his side. But the nobleman acted as though he was better than the people of Paris, refusing to descend from his own carriage when he passed the king. It was in the face of this insult that Louis appears to have made the first crucial decision of his 72-year reign. September 7th marked his 13th birthday the traditional date that marks the lawful age for the ascension to the throne. Despite being told not to by his mother and Mazarin, Louis stopped playing the role of a prisoner and went in person to the Parliament in a glorious cavalcade of 800 nobles walking two by two without a traditional predetermined order of precedence. He surrounded himself by his personal guards and household servants. At this moment, Louis bet that his popularity would keep him safe. Conde saw the procession coming and heard the popular cheer as the group made their way towards Parliament. In what was likely a mistake, Conde panicked and fled, arriving in Bordeaux on September 22nd, where he immediately began the process of forming an army by seizing royal tax dollars. His behavior suggested that he fancied himself as a king, rather than governor.
Louis's gamble had paid off, and despite Mazarin's warnings, he doubled down on his first bet, proclaiming Condé an outlaw and a criminal. The two forces clashed in April, with the rebel forces numbering at 15,000 against Louis's 12. Condé's larger forces proved victorious on the day, as Paris once again turned against the royal government, which had okayed the return of the deeply unpopular Mazarin. Louis's defeated forces prepared for a siege, while the newly empowered king did everything he could to regain the love of his people, including providing military escorts so that bakers could distribute their bread directly to the suffering people. Unfortunately, the majority of Louis's people refused the aid, as they had fallen for Condé's propaganda, which had told the people that the bread was laced with poison. It was a military victory that saved the rule of Louis. As they head when Joan of Arc assaulted them, Paris's walls managed to keep Condé out of the city. He was defeated by royal troops on July 2nd, 1652. The few troops that he had managed to get into the city slaughtered innocents and stole whatever they could find. Their actions turned the people against Condé and back towards Louis, only now coming to understand that the bread had indeed been a gesture of his majesty's goodwill and love for his people. Parliament had championed Condé, a man who had shown himself to act disgracefully by bringing a foreign army to bear against the capital. Those parliamentary leaders who did not send themselves into voluntary exile begged for mercy from Louis, Anne, and Cardinal Mazarin. Just as the Frand had, this event popularized Louis's role as king showing that the people of France were not yet ready to abandon their royal tradition. On the other hand, it revealed how selfishly the nobles of the Estates General had been, putting their own interests far above the people of France. Particularly appalling was their willingness to burn down the capital in an effort to avoid paying taxes. One side had provided bread for the people, the other side brought in foreign soldiers to steal it from them. This moment is described as a humiliating loss for the aristocracy, while simultaneously an immensely important victory for Louis, who at age 14 triumphantly re-entered his capital city to one of the loudest ovations that France had ever experienced. An ovation even louder than that that had occurred at the boy's birth. Anne and Cardinal Mazarin expected life to go on as it had before, and immediately began the process of reasserting their authority. But Louis had grown up during the Frand. He had experienced battle as well as threats to his life. For years now, he had successfully managed the roles of both general and ballroom politician. He felt it was now time for him to rule on his own. He generously granted a general amnesty to all who had participated in the Frand, choosing to put the past behind him so that he and France could move forward. He reinstated Parliament, 
but forbade it from discussing politics or finance without his permission, thus clearly putting the crown atop the Congress. Mazarin and Anne were allowed to stay in the country, joining Louis as they moved court from the Palais Royal to Paris's most famous fortress, the Louvre. The move was symbolic in that Louis would never again feel safe within his capital city. The king had made up his mind that he was to be a war leader from here on out, and only his voice would be the one making decisions from this point forward. They celebrated the victory again on February 23rd with the opening of a new ballet that the king had been practicing for for the past three months, seven hours a day. The spotlight was now on him. His dance had just begun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.